Well, good morning, family. Good to be with you this morning. We're in the book of Titus. I encourage you to take your Bibles and open there to the to that little letter, just three chapters long, right in between Second Timothy and an even smaller book called Philemon. Uh, we're in the midst of a study. We're in week five, and uh, I hope that. Um, uh, if you've been around, you've been enjoying the study. I have. I've been learning so much and uh, hope you'll be encouraged this morning. Let's pray as we come to the Word. Father, thank You so much for Your infallible, inerrant Word. It gives us all we need for faith and for life. It equips us. It washes us purifies us, strengthens us, encourages us. Your Spirit works through Your Word to bring about change in us and to motivate us and move us. And we pray this morning that You would indeed help us to come to Your Word as a mirror that it would reflect to us what is there, whether it's what we want to see or not that we would see a real image of who we are, that we would not look into the mirror and then go away unchanged, as James says, but rather that we would be doers of the Word. It would change us. So Lord, may Your Word and Your Spirit do their work in us this morning for our good and for the glory of Jesus. In His name we ask it. Amen. Paul writes this little letter to Titus to equip and encourage this young pastor who is left on the island of Crete with the mission to build up, to strengthen, to bring to maturity the fledgling churches there on this island, to build churches that are able to survive and thrive amid the pagan culture of Crete. And as you and I aim to do the same thing, to survive and thrive as believers and as a church in our own day and in our own culture, we have an awful lot to learn from this little book. Survival is one thing. Thriving is another thing altogether. See, Jesus' expectation for us is not simply to hunker down until He returns. But rather, as we this month focus on missions, we're reminded that Jesus, in His last words before He returned to heaven, He left us with a mission. As Matthew records in Matthew 28, He says that we are to make disciples of all nations, what is often called the Great Commission there in Matthew 28. Mark 16 records that Jesus said we are to preach the Gospel to all creation. In Acts 1.8, as He ascends to heaven, Jesus says, you are to be My witnesses. He left us with a mission. Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. We are to be the very 
mouthpiece, as it were, of God. His ambassadors in this world, representing Him, making the appeal, as Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 5, be reconciled to God. Be made right in a relationship with Him. The great Latin American evangelist Luis Palau has said, evangelism is not an option for the Christian life not an option. It is our mission. And so I wonder, how is it, how, how do we reach our culture in 21st century America? How do we reach our community? Do we take out some billboards? I'll get some skinny jeans, grow a goatee. <laughs> Do we do it through mailings, radio, TV? Is it all about social media, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever? Is it all about celebrity endorsements? Do we need big events, fireworks and paratroop, you know, jumpers and stuff? Do we just need a better pastor and better bands and fog machines? The reality if your friends, if your neighbors, your family, if they're like most of the folks I know, and they probably are, most of them aren't really too impressed by what they see of Christianity on TV or what they hear in the media or what they read on the Internet. They've known plenty of hypocrites. They've watched scandals unfold in churches. They've seen high-profile celebrity pastors and Christian leaders go down in flames. They see and watch as television evangelists fleece the sheep begging for money while they live in mansions and drive Bentleys and fly around in their private jet. They're not impressed. They're skeptical. They're jaded. And how do we reach such people? Well, chapter 2 of Titus has some things to say about how we reach and how we impact a jaded society. The first ten verses we saw last week Paul addresses five different groups of people. Last week we actually only looked at the first four, the first eight verses and first four groups as he talked to older men, older women, and younger women and younger men. Today we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 and the, the fifth group, the last of these five groups. Follow along as I just read these two verses. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This fifth group that he addresses is bondservants. Slaves, 
Slavery was woven deeply into the fabric of Roman society. Some historians say that in the Roman Empire, slaves outnumbered the free men. So these early churches often had a significant number of slaves as part of their church. Matter of fact, as I look through the, uh, the, the New Testament, it often addresses slaves, but the letters sometimes don't address masters. I think the reason for that is probably that there were an awful lot more slaves in the churches than there were masters. The church, matter of fact, the, the, uh, when you go back and you read some of the ancient writers, some of the accusations, some of the slanders, some of the jabs that they poked at the early church was that they attracted the, the lower echelons of society, the poor and the slaves. And the high-minded social elites kind of made fun of the church for that. The Apostle Paul, you might recall, over in 1 Corinthians says that not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were, were the, the educated, the elite. And I think that that's the case in the early church. But as Paul addresses slaves, I think there's a fair question to ask, a fair objection that many people raise. And that is, why didn't Jesus or the apostles condemn slavery outright? As Paul addresses slaves here, why doesn't Paul say, you slaves, I want you to know that slavery is really an evil and it's an awful thing and, and we pray to God that it's going to be abolished real soon, but let me give you a few words. We wonder why that didn't happen. It's a fair question to ask. First, I think we need to understand that the focus of the Scriptures is not the abolition of slavery, nor the fixing of any other governmental or societal ill in particular. There are plenty of issues that, that could have been raised. Slavery was one of them. Plenty of things wrong with the Roman Empire and the Roman government. Plenty of things wrong in society. The Scriptures don't address those things specifically, at least typically, because that's not the focus. Rather, the focus of the Bible message is getting lost people in right relationship to God. And then helping those people who are now in right relationship with God, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, helping them and equipping them to live godly lives while living in the midst of a pagan and a corrupt culture, a world system that is broken and which won't be fixed ever fully and completely until Jesus Christ returns and sets up His kingdom. Until then, all of these things won't be fixed so the Bible focuses on man's real need, which is right relationship with God. And his primary need there, I should say. Secondly, history had already demonstrated that Roman slavery would not go down easy. And it would not likely be ended through protesting or uprising or rebellion. 
There had already in history been three major slavery rebellions in the Roman Empire. One back in 135 B.C. Another one in 104 B.C. Both of those ended with tremendous loss of life and in failure. The, the last of, the, of these three rebellions was led by Spartacus in 73 B.C. I just watched the movie on TV this week, the 1960s version with Kirk Douglas and Spartacus. Very inspiring movie and it all ends, everybody dies. There were some, at that, in that rebellion, some 120,000 plus slaves who died fighting the rebellion. It wasn't going down easy. Thirdly, Christianity did fight slavery, but in a whole different way. It did it through teachings that destroyed the foundations that slavery would be built upon. Let me give you just a smattering of some of the teachings in Scripture that undermine the underpinnings of slavery. Christianity taught that all men, both slave and free, share a common human parentage. We see that, of course, in the creation account. We also, in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, it says, God hath made of one blood all nations. All men come from one ancestor, Adam and Eve. It tells us as well that all men have a common divine pattern. In other words, we are made, as Genesis 1.27 tells us, we are made, all of us, in the image of God. God created man. All men, both slave and free, share a common and a desperate need, and that is to be saved, to be rescued from sin and the penalty of sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We need rescue. Romans 6.23 goes on to say, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. John 3.18, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The wrath of God abides on Him. Slave and free have a common desperate need. Christianity also teaches that all men, whether slave or free, who then trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, they have a common salvation through one Savior, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins. They have a common Master, one God, who, to whom we will all, both slave and free, give account. We have a common unity as one body. We are in the body of Christ. We are every one of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 tells us, both slave and free have been placed into the body of Christ. We are as then as believers in Christ, slave and free. We are related as brothers and sisters. The Scripture tells us we have been adopted into God's family. 
We find in that little book of Philemon that Paul writes that letter to Philemon about this runaway slave Onesimus and he says, welcome him back now as a brother. We find that in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that there is no distinction between slave and free. There is, we are equal before God. That's a sampling of just some of the shocking stuff. Not shocking to our ears, but in first century ears, when you read through these things, these are shocking things. God is no respecter of persons. This is politically incorrect culturally against culture, counterculture. Anyone who honestly believes and receives the Word of God understands the foundations for slavery were torn apart through the teachings of the New Testament. So that's one objection or one question some would have when you come here and you read about slavery. And There's a second objection that you might raise that might be, why is this relevant or how is this relevant to us today? This group of slaves stands out in a stark contrast to the other four groups that we looked at last week. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, all of us find ourselves fitting in one of those categories. We're all either a man or a woman. We're all either older or younger and we find ourselves fitting into one of those groups. We can identify with that. But slavery, we come to this and we say, that's out of my life realm. I know pretty much most of you here this morning, I don't think that any of you have ever existed as a slave where you were bought by somebody and owned by somebody as property. If you did, I'm sorry, but I'm glad you're here now. Most of us have never talked to anyone who has been a slave. It's divorced from our experience. It's divorced from our culture. It's not anything that we encounter on a daily basis or even in probably in our lifetime, most of us. We know it's out there, but it's not part of our experience. And so we tend to come to this passage and go, huh, slaves. And we turn down the volume, turn off the switch, we check out this, I'm not a slave, so this doesn't really apply to me. I don't know any slaves, and so there's really no reason to go on. But let me just give us two reasons this morning I think we need to pay attention to this passage. Matter of fact, it's exactly because of this why I chose to take one week for four groups last week and one week for this one group that seems so out of place. Because I think it's significant. See, I think this has application. While not fully, while none of us are slaves, it has application to all of us, to any of us, who at any place, at any time, find ourselves under authority. We have people over us where we have obligations to them or they have expectations of us. In other words, pretty much all of us fit that. Whether you are an employee, you've got a job. Whether you are a student, 
whether you are children at home, whether you volunteer in some organization, we can come up with other places where, where there's a structure, there's an authority, there are obligations, there are expectations, there are duties. As he speaks here to slave, there's ap- slaves, there are applications to us. Secondly, and I think more importantly, I think it applies to us because it says no excuses. Let me explain. I think unfortunately, there is a tendency, a predilection for you and me to come to to the Word of God. We, We come to where God speaks and says, this is what you need to do. There are commands. There's instruction. And we look at it and we say, you know, I I take exception with that. At times in our life, we we are disappointed when we look in the mirror, we look at our life and we're disappointed, we're frustrated by our circumstances. You ever been there? We look at our circumstances and we say, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I wanted. This wasn't on my agenda or my life plan. And it's easy when we find ourselves in that situation to, to say, you know, this isn't what I deserve. You feel trapped in your life as it is now. You, you've got a job that you really don't like. You don't think you can quit. You're on a, you're stuck in a career and don't see an alternative to it, but you don't like it. Or you're in a troubled marriage. Or you've got a physical illness or a physical disability. Or you just have overwhelming responsibilities. Or you've got financial problems. And whatever it is, you look at it and you just feel trapped in this and you just you get disappointed, frustrated. And it's easy at a time like that to say, you know, I know that God says this. I know I should do that. But, and here come the excuses. We find all kinds of excuses why I don't have to obey God's Word right now. My circumstances demand an exemption. Special circumstances, right? You've done this, haven't you? I know you have. You just don't want to raise your hand. We all do. I don't have to respect my boss because have you seen my boss? You know, fill in the blank. Blah, 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 blah. I don't have to forgive my neighbors because... Fill in the blank. I don't have to love my spouse because fill in the blank. I don't have to obey my parents because fill in the blank. I don't have to be kind to my coworker because I shouldn't have to work hard for this company because fill in the blank. I don't have to follow the speed limit because, you know, now I just went to meddling. I don't have to tell the whole truth this time because, you know, I'm an adult. I'm just a kid. 
I'm a student. I'm too busy. We've got all the excuses. We love excuses. Honestly, don't we? We've got all kinds. We use them frequently. But if anyone ever had a legitimate reason to complain about their situation and to say, I've got a raw deal. It's not fair. If anyone had a legitimate reason to say, you know what, I'm going to do what I want for a change. And I don't care what anybody, including God, says right now. If anybody had an excuse to say that, a reason to say that, I think a slave would qualify. Somebody else says they own me and they control every minute of my life and I've got the right to choose something and I don't care what I'm going to do what I want, right? Wouldn't, I mean, if anybody has that right, wouldn't, and yet, these verses and the other passages in the scripture that I can find that refer to slaves, everyone I can find, says similar things. It, it singles them out and, and says to slaves, set aside your pride. Set aside your victimhood. Set aside your rationalizations. Set aside your, your preferences. Set aside your ambitions. And obey Jesus Christ as a slave. If a slave is expected to obey God in their situation, brothers and sisters, don't you think that He expects us who have experienced and received countless more blessings, who have freedom... Don't you think He expects us to obey Him in our situations? Which, for most of us, are far easier and better than that of a slave. And you see, for that reason, I think these instructions to slaves apply to us immensely. We can't just read them and go, doesn't doesn't affect me. That's for slaves. I think if slaves have to live up to this, so should we. Uh, the Apostle Peter says, um, he says, live as free men. You're free men. Live as free men. But do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. We're free people. Let's look at what he has to say to slaves very quickly. Five instructions. He says, first of all, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be submissive. They're to be in submission. Slaves are already legally bound to their masters. They are already, they are already in submission legally. But this word here literally translates this way. Put yourselves in submission. Submit yourselves. I get the fact that you're already legally in submission, but this is dealing with the attitude. 
dealing with the mind. You submit yourself to this situation and to this master. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 22, Paul says this, he says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. If you are a slave and somebody comes and says and presents to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ, you have your sins forgiven, you, you have eternal life in heaven, you know, and, and you say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ, I trust in Him, you are saved. He says at that moment, the person who is a slave is immediately a free person. They're a freed man in the Lord. The way that works is this. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, when you trust in Him, not only are you saved, the Bible says you're adopted into God's family. You become God's child. It also says that you've been bought with a price. Jesus has bought you with His own blood. You belong to Jesus. He's bought you. You belong to Him. You are in His family. Well, if you're in His family and He's paid for you, you don't belong to Joe Schmo, who owns you as a slave. You're a free man. But then what He says is, as a free man, go back and submit yourself willingly to that Master. And that right there just kind of rattles your brain. Why, if you're free, does He send you back? I think we'll find some answers as we keep moving. Notice He also says, you are to submit to your own masters in everything. Even if what they ask is hard and even if what they ask is frustrating, even if the master is difficult, even if he is unreasonable, he's a pagan, even if he is cruel. Is he really say to do that? Yes, He does. By the way, note as well that He says they are to be submissive to their own masters. There's a limitation there. There's a declaration in that. What it's saying is slaves are not a lower class of people. They are not a subhuman. It is saying there is a limit to whom they submit to. They don't have to submit to everybody because they're upper people and lower people. It says you have to submit to that master because there's a relationship here where they legally have authority over you. They own you. You submit to that. But there's a limit to it. It is limited by what is required by the law and by that relationship. That concept helps answer another question that sometimes people have as we try to apply that today. If, if, if uh, slaves are supposed to submit to their masters and we're saying that that has application in my, in my job as an employee or at my school as a student, and so does that mean I have to submit when the, when the master, uh, when the boss is being unreasonable when they are being abusive, when they are doing something that is illegal or immoral or unethical, do I have to submit? And the answer is no. First of all, Scripture always tells us that we are to submit to authority, but that is always limited by when the authority goes against God's authority and tells us to do something that God says don't do or to not do something that God says we must do as 
We find the example in Acts with the apostles before the Sanhedrin. They said, you decide, should we obey God or men? We've already decided we obey God. You obey the higher authority. But more than that, there's a limit here on the on their authority. And it is the law. And so at work, if there is a problem and there is a legitimate means to deal with that, you are okay to deal with that. And it's not stepping out of submission to your boss to go and file a grievance. Here's where they violated the rules. A good example of that, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, the Apostle Paul tells the slaves, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunities. It is fine to use the mechanisms that are in place, the laws that are in place, to remedy problems, to seek justice, to, or to improve your situation. It's fine to do that, but what the attitude of submission means that whatever we do as we address such things, it is with an attitude of humility, an attitude of submission, not an attitude of rebellion, not one of arrogance, not one of complaining. And we'll deal with some of these other things that come up here in just a moment. Slaves are to be in submission. They are also quickly... It says they are to be well-pleasing. That means that they try to please their masters. It means for us, we don't just do our job, but we seek to please. We go above and beyond the call. We do things with excellence. As employees, as students, as people under authority, we should be respectful and in submission to authority. We should also be doing things with excellence. I just skipped ahead to another word. Respectfully says, not argumentative. It means, literally, it means don't talk back. We shouldn't be those folks who have negative and bad attitudes. We should give respect. As the scripture says, give honor to whom honor is due. Give respect to whom respect is due. The beginning of that verse says, owe no man anything. He goes on, he says, not pilfering, not stealing. Literally, or embezzling is another literal translation for that. We would be folks of integrity. Thievery was common among slaves. We can understand that. If you have little to call, or even perhaps nothing to call your own, but you have opportunity to, to get a little something, we can understand what a great temptation that is. Slaves frequently were, were sent on errands and, and would, uh, in many cases, they were, they were bookkeepers, they were, they were professionals, they were physicians, they were architects, uh, they had positions of high authority. And there, there were easy ways to pilfer. If you're a professional or even if you're a lowly slave and you're sent to the market and the, the market's not like Walmart that has published prices on the internet where your boss can look and know exactly how much it's going to cost before you get there. You, instead, you go to the market to buy a, a pound of potatoes and they give you, you know, a buck and you go there and you can, you can haggle for price and you get a pound of potatoes for 75 cents. How's he going to know it didn't cost a buck? You can understand the temptation when you have so little. But we understand that 
It doesn't just happen then. How easily it slips into our mindset today. How easy it is to pilfer just the little things, the, the office supplies, the pens and staplers and tools that make their way from the office to our home and while they, when they shouldn't. How easy it is to just pad the expense account numbers just a little bit or to fudge the numbers on our work hours or just to do a little social media on company time or to steal at school, cheating by stealing someone else's work or answers or whatever we find ourselves faced with temptation to compromise our integrity. So we ought not be that way. And he says to show ourselves trustworthy or full of faith, to be folks who are faithful, folks that can be counted on, that will always do what is right, who will always keep their word, who will always follow through on responsibilities. This is what a believing slave ought to be. And so this is what brothers and sisters in Christ who are free, we ought to be as well in those places where we are under authority. The question though is why? Why should we have to do this? And why is it such a big deal? Especially for slaves who already seem like folks who are dumped on so much. Why does the Scripture come and dump this upon them? Okay, slave, go back. And live as a slave willingly. Submit yourself willingly. Have a great attitude. Do your work with excellence. Go above and beyond the call. Be respectful. Be thoroughly a person of integrity. Be faithful in everything. Well, I go back to my opening question. How do we get past the noise of hypocrites who give Jesus Christ a bad name? so that we can present Jesus Christ to a pagan and jaded and skeptical culture where they have any interest at all in Jesus. The problem's nothing new. I'm going to have to go very quickly here, but go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and just look at the first phrase. But as for you, that's a contrast. He's saying, but as for you, and he goes on and talks to, to the old men, the young men, and well, first he talks to Titus, and to the, Titus is supposed to talk to the old men and the young men and, and, to, the, and to the older women and the younger women and, and to the slaves, and all of you are to be different. But as for you, it's a contrast, and who are they to be different from? It's the end of chapter 1, which is all talking about false teachers. False teachers who are causing trouble there on the island of Crete. We looked at them several weeks ago. These false teachers whom he described in verse 10 as empty talkers and deceivers whom he describes in verse 11 as teaching for shameful gain whom he describes in verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. Translation, these false teachers were deceitful frauds who pose as 
believers in Christ as godly people, but they're only in it for the money. And their deeds will eventually prove that they are pond scum. Really paraphrasing. And I ask, does that sound familiar at all? Does that sound like some of the scandals and some of the scams and some of the false teachers in our day? Reality, it hasn't changed. Here are infant fledgling churches on the island of Crete and they've already got the same problem we have today with false believers and false teachers who are making our unsaved friends and neighbors very skeptical going, yeah... I hear you talk about Jesus, but I'm not really sure that He makes any difference at all. So what are real believers to do? Chapter 2, the end of verse 5. You're supposed to live godly. He's talking to the, remember, the old men, the young, the young men, the older women, the younger women. He says that you need to, at the end of verse 5, live godly so that the Word of God may not be reviled or blasphemed or spoken badly about. So that, into verse 8, an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. And now to this fifth group, the slaves, he says basically the same thing from a positive point of view. So that in everything, they, the slaves, may adorn the Gospel of God or the teaching, the doctrine of God our Savior. That's the punchline. The word adorn means to dress it up. It's the word in Greek, it's the word cosmeo. It's where we get the, the word that we use all the time, cosmetics. It's where we take something and we make it beautiful. The word cosmeo means that you, you put on the, the nice clothes. And you scrub the face and you put on some makeup and you, you fix the hair. And you don't forget the accessories that make the outfit pop. So that, it's gorgeous. Stunning. Slaves, why should you go back into that house where you are a slave when you are a free person in Christ? You are to go back there because God wants you to go there as your mission field and there to make the Gospel of Jesus beautiful. See, this is ultimately what will win over skeptical unbelievers to the Gospel. It's not going to be mass media, flashy programs, Celebrities, nothing's necessarily wrong with any of those, but what's going to win over a skeptical friend, skeptical neighbor is rubbing shoulders with real Jesus followers. See, unbelievers get it. Unbelievers understand in, instinctively what many Christians fail to think about. Christianity is all about, fill in the blank, it's in the name, 
Christ. It's Jesus. Christianity is all about Jesus. And they watch us. Any of us who they know, this person claims to be a believer. And they look to see, do you really believe what you say? You say you're a Jesus follower. You say you're a Christian. But does Jesus really mean anything in your life? People who claim to be believers say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. And they wear the t-shirt and they got the bumper sticker. But they live life all about them. And they live life on their terms. Those folks are easy to dismiss as hypocrites. And when unbelievers see those folks, they go, yeah, there goes another one. I don't want any part of it. But those people who genuinely love Jesus and they genuinely live for Jesus, So much so that it changes a slave from forced labor to a joyful, faithful servant. They make the gospel of Jesus attractive. And that kind of person is hard to ignore. I'm grateful that I... You were not born into slavery or have not been forced into slavery. But God has put us where we are. In your situations right now, your job, your home, your school. And He intends for us to be where we are what He intended for those slaves to be where they were. And that is to be those who make the Gospel of Jesus beautiful by submitting ourselves willingly to authority. By being those who serve with excellence, who work with excellence. To be those who are not back-talkers, but we are respectful to be those folks who are full of integrity. To be those folks who are faithful in everything. Several years ago, I heard Chip Ingram talking about a friend of his who's a leader, a business leader in China. Who said, this Chinese businessman said, the Chinese government finds themselves in a big quandary. They have a love-hate relationship with Christianity. The Chinese government has had to make note that Christians submit to authority. That Christians are honest. That Christians work hard. That Christians do their work on time. China is hungry to be the strongest economic power in the world. And they realize that they can trust Christian workers. And they find themselves in a quandary because they want to harness Christianity. But they are terribly afraid of destabilizing their power. And they don't know what to do. (laughs) 
I find that awesome. Our persecuted brothers and sisters in China are adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, are we doing that here? Because that's what God calls for us to do. Let's pray. Father, it's a high calling to live where we are in such a way that we adorn the gospel. We, we live it out. And it beautifully reflects You. It means there's an awful lot of times we're going to have to swallow our pride. An awful lot of times we have to submit. And the tendency is to rebel. We have to work hard when we want to be lazy. A lot of times we have to do that when it's not fair. When from a human standpoint it doesn't make sense. But that's precisely at the right time when it makes the most, the biggest statement that we're we're following You. Because it's not about us. It's not about our agenda. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our ambitions. It's not about our comfort. It's about obedience to Jesus. And Lord, when we're honest and we look in the mirror, we realize we struggle with that. So Lord God, I pray that Your Word this morning would do a work in our hearts and it would begin to shape us and remake us so that we might be able to live in such a way that we make the Gospel of Jesus beautiful. So that we honor Christ and bring others to know Him in whom only there is life. So we ask in His name. Amen.